and the whole field of mental health, which of course includes psychiatry and psychology, but other fields as well, there was not a single definition of the mind, which really drove me out of my mind, even though I didn't have a definition for what it was. Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to The Glow Podcast. This special episode of The Glow Podcast features a talk given at Glow's offices in Santa Monica pre-pandemic by Dr. Dan Siegel. This talk was meant to be the start of a monthly lecture series at our office for our team behind the scenes at Glow. We recorded it shortly before we went into lockdown. If you go to his website, which I'll post in the show notes, you'll see in large letters on his homepage the following statement. Integration made visible is kindness and compassion, using science to bring more compassion and empathy to this world. In this talk, Dr. Siegel unpacks what he means by the word integration and how we can live more fulfilling lives through a deeper understanding of what the mind is and by expanding our capacity for awareness through practice. Part of what I appreciate about him is that he draws upon his vast interdisciplinary experience as a therapist, educator, researcher, and author to explain what he calls the wheel of awareness, a meditation tool for expanding awareness. He speaks to how we can challenge traditional ideas of the mind and the self. He breaks down misconceptions of these concepts to help us reach new understandings of our human experience ultimately leading to a deeper interconnectedness and the unequivocal importance of love. Dr. Dan Siegel is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine and the founding co-director of UCLA's Mindful Awareness Research Center. His bio is way too long to post here, so you can see that at his website, but his most recent New York Times bestseller, Aware, the science and practice of presence provides practical instruction for mastering the wheel of awareness, which he says is a life-changing tool for cultivating more focus, presence, and peace in one's day-to-day life. I highly recommend his books. Here's Dr. Siegel's talk at GLOW. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much. So um, we get the opportunity to hang out uh, this afternoon and talk about um, things that I hope will be relevant for your personal lives and your professional lives, your public lives and your planetary lives. And all of those lives that we lead, um, as Derek was saying, really have uh, an enrichment when we bring different voices together. And what I'd like to do is present to you a, a brief overview, a kind of tour uh, of one way of understanding the mind that comes from this consilient effort. Consilience is a word from the 1800s that E.O. Wilson brought back recently, reminding us that we could have a a way of seeing what is shared in common across disciplines. So this is really fun for me to be here today, Monday, because last night at 11.30, I pressed send on the first textbook of uh, interpersonal neurobiology that I wrote in the 90s, and now it's in its third edition. And so I thought I was gonna lose my mind because there were 2,200 references in 10 different chapters that were segmented, and I had to remember where was which 
one, so I was so happy to press send. So this will be a fun tour, um, like the, uh, the magical mystery tour. So the first thing to say about today's um, topic about the mind uh, is that we don't actually have in any of the fields that work with the mind a definition of that word. So for me, I initially trained in biochemistry and then uh, went to medical school and then I trained in pediatrics and then psychiatry, child and adolescent psychiatry, and then I became a researcher studying how parents and children interact in a field called attachment. And when I was asked to be the training director uh, in this field of mental health that dealt with kids and adolescents, I was kind of confused when I was beginning to be an educator that no one educated me about the very thing that we were supposed to be, mental health practitioners. And the whole field of mental health, which of course includes psychiatry and psychology, but other fields as well, there was not a single definition of the mind, which really drove me out of my mind, even though I didn't have a definition for what it was. And that finding, when you look across disciplines, really raises a question for anyone, maybe some of you, who are interested in creating conditions that make a healthier mind. The next thing that we'll talk about is the self, which is also a fascinating entity. And as you probably know, some people spend a lot of time thinking that they want to develop the self, develop themselves. Self-actualization was really big, started you know, in the 60s at Esalen. Uh, and, and there at Esalen, the whole idea was, could you realize your fullest self? But at the same time, there were other traditions that said there is no self, and anyone who talks about the self is actually psychotic and they should stop talking like that. So you had this really weird thing where the field of psychology was saying it's all about yourself um, when other people were saying there is no self. So this just becomes a really interesting question. Uh, and then consciousness, of course, is the super holy grail for a lot of scientists to say, well, I'm gonna figure out what that is. And the, the bottom line about what people know at this moment is very, very little about what consciousness is made of or what it is all about. So I was just at a meeting a couple of weeks ago at Stanford where they set the whole um, context up and I couldn't believe that this wasn't a joke, but it wasn't. They said, we're gonna bring the leading theorists on consciousness together and determine which ones shall be killed and which ones will survive. And I thought that's gotta be a joke, but it, it actually was how they really wanted to set it up. So a bunch of us went there who have these theories about consciousness, and it was a very interesting thing. But the bottom line is there are some main theories, but no one has some final word about what consciousness is. So these are some of the questions we're gonna address. You know, what is this thing called mind? And if you're doing something like having an app that's encouraging people to develop their mind through, let's say, yoga or other practices, what is that mind you're really trying to help people develop? And when they come to your app, they're bringing a self to that app. So what is that self? What, what does it really mean to have that word self? You know? um, and of course, then the next set of questions is, what would it mean to have, once you figure out what that thing is, what it, would a healthy mind or self be? Um, and then the fascinating thing is that all the different efforts, whether it's in psychotherapy or you know, 
self-improvement or self-actualization, all these things, education, parenting even, they all involve awareness. So that's just really an interesting consilient finding that the effort to make positive intentional change is coupled with consciousness. So then you can ask, well, why is that? And, and what actually is consciousness? So we're gonna say, how does awareness shape well-being? And then, of course, we can take all those questions and say, what, what can we do to make a healthier world? So let's dive into it. These drawings are from my daughter, Maddie Siegel, who's uh, an environmental science graduate student in New York, but she's also an artist, so she's and a meditator and a yoga. She's a big yoga person. Um, whenever I go with my daughter to do yoga, which I love doing, I have to have about three months of physical therapy, so I don't go with her anymore because they found four ruptured discs from a horse accident I had when I was 20. Anyway, um, but she's a great yoga person. In this drawing, what you see is this notion that the mind has something to do with things that go on inside your body and also outside your body. So I'm not going to give you the whole long story, but the, the very, very short version of it is I brought 40 scientists together to try to address the question of what is the mind and what's its connection with the brain. And it led to a, a, the birth of the field of interpersonal neurobiology. This is from 1992. And this drawing is a kind of a summary of that whole thing that an anthropologist or a sociologist or a linguist would see the mind as relational, whereas most neuroscientists and psychologists and psychiatrists would see the mind as basically a word that means brain activity in your head. So then how can you find common ground of something that's both within your head and something that happens in your relationships? And so through a, a, a certain line of reasoning from just a few feet from here down on the beach, it seemed to me that what they could share in common was energy and information flow. That what the brain is, is a system in your head that allows electrochemical energy to flow and certain patterns of that flow stand for something. They symbolize something, so they're information. And what happens in our relationship, like what I have with you right now, is the sharing of energy and information flow. So skull nor skin are barriers for that flow. So the system of mind, whatever mind ends up being, may have something to do with energy and information flow. This isn't the way most people think or even talk. But once you start thinking that way, all sorts of interesting things happens. One of the interesting things that happens is you would have no reason to ever put the mind only in the head. So at Stanford, um, the person that, that I chose to speak with on the panel was a guy named Antonio Damasio, who's here at USC. And Antonio and I have a, fortunately the same kind of view that you, putting the mind in the brain, which is what Hippocrates did 2,500 years ago and William James, the father of modern psychology, did in 1890, is probably a serious error. It's a serious error academically to place the mind in the head alone. And it's also a serious error for modern society because it means if your mind is in your head and the self comes from the mind, then you're just a solo self. And that's probably what's killing the planet, that attitude about who we are. So this becomes more than just an interesting intellectual discussion. It becomes 
literally a matter of life and death, not just for individuals who might want to end their lives. Uh, you know, so like the last time I had been up at Stanford was for two visits. One was to the medical school, where you probably know 56% of the postgraduate medical trainees have serious depression, anxiety, or are suicidal. I don't know if you knew that. And I had gone there to teach all the medical faculty at Stanford. And then just around the same time at the high school where all these Silicon Valley people mostly send their kids to school, they have continual suicides of the kids jumping in front of the trains. And we have a higher suicide rate now than ever. So what's going on inside of a person when they feel so isolated could on some level come from this way in which people feel so alone because they're given a message that who they are is just in their body or just in their brain, in their head. And that message actually is not only wrong, it could be lethal for the individual. And then people basically treat Earth like a trash can when they think that all, that, all it's about is me getting as many toys as I can in this life that I get in this body. So these questions become hugely important in our work as a humanity about climate crisis issues. And this becomes then a kind of pressing, timely question, right? If we're given about 12 years to do what Joanna Macy calls the great turning, to, to actually turn the way humanity lives on this planet, then it's not like 12 days, but 12 years goes pretty fast. So this is what drives me um, uh, to do all the different things I get involved with, including climate issues. Okay, so we want to see how it's embodied, fully embodied and relational, but what is this thing called mind? And this is probably something you're very familiar with, especially the first three, subjective experience. The reason mind can't be equated with brain, even though it always is, is because you have subjective experience. So when I was uh, in school at USC in the uh, 70s, and... Um, I was trained to be a biochemist, so I was studying different things about molecules and enzymes and stuff. But at night, I was working on a suicide prevention service. When a person in a suicide crisis would call, if I just said to them, hey, you know, I really hear your serotonin levels are probably really low, and, you know, I'm really sorry, your dopamine is probably not really surging right now. It's, you know, they'd kill themselves. Because I'd just be identifying, you know, molecular mechanisms in the brain are not the same as feeling hopeless, feeling lonely, feeling despair, feeling depressed. Those are subjective feelings, right? The word subjective, unfortunately, in English, sounds like it's not as important as it should be, but actually it's probably the most important thing in life. So I wish we could have a different term. Sometimes people use the word first-person experience for that. How do you know you're having it? You have consciousness. Also can't be equated with the, with the brain, even though people look like mad for neural correlates of that. And then you have information processing, which you're probably familiar with thinking and remembering and stuff like that. The fourth thing there, self-organization, you know, this is um, where you can start asking questions like, what is a healthy mind? Because with the first three, you can't really say, like, what's healthy consciousness? that nothing jumps out at you, or what's healthy subjective experience? Well, you can be sad, and that's fine. That doesn't mean you're unhealthy, right? 
So self-organization, has any, have any of you ever heard of self-organization? Anyone heard that? It's a math term that most people haven't heard of, um, but it basically says the following thing. If you're what's called a complex system, and people get really freaked out, number one, when I say math, and number two, when I say complex, they get worried it's too complicated. It's really, really simple. It's not the same as complicated. Complexity is really simple. So think about your life. Would you say that you have one or two or three of these features? One is that you're influenced by stuff that's outside of what you would call you. This means you're an open system. Anybody feel like you're an open system? Raise your hand really high so I can see. Okay, so number one, you're open. Number two, did you ever have a chaotic day where it was really hard to get things going, your kind of random stuff was going on? Anybody chaos capable? Okay, that's two. And the third thing is if you're what's called nonlinear, which means a small input at one time leads to a large and difficult to predict result. Anybody feel like you're nonlinear? So if you're a nonlinear, chaos-capable open system, in this universe, what mathematicians will tell you is you are a part of what's called a complex system. Those three criteria mean you're a complex system. The reason that's important is because in math, it's been demonstrated that complex systems have something that is a kind of a, an amazing term. People usually accuse me of being a Californian and making it up because I'm from California, but it actually is a math term that comes from the field of mathematics. It's called emergence. Emergence means the stuff of a system, a complex system, is interacting with itself, and in that interaction, it gives rise to something larger than the individual components. It's where the phrase, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, comes from. That's emergence. One of those emergent properties of a complex system is this completely non-intuitive, illogical thing. It doesn't make any sense, only it's a reality, and it's called self-organization. Self-organization is the emergent property of complex systems that arises from the interaction of the systems, because it's emergent, and then it regulates its own becoming, which doesn't make any sense, because then it's arising from something that's already arisen from and regulated, and then it continues to arise from that which is already regulated, which is true, and that's called recursivity. It recursively feeds back on itself. So think about a cloud. A cloud is a complex system, water molecules and air molecules. It self-organizes in a way that optimizes or maximizes complexity, and all that means is that it's the most likely outcome. The way to think about it is it like a river, and one bank outside of the river is rigidity. Everything's predictable and unchanging. The other bank is chaos, and everything is completely unpredictable. The center flow is in between rigidity and chaos, and in that center flow, it has five characteristics that when I read them back in the 90s, I couldn't believe how elegant this was from math. Flexible, adaptive, coherent means it stays together well over time. It's resilient, energized, and stable. So that faces flow, as we'll see, is what optimal self-organization comes from. So then the question was, could the mind be the self-organizing, embodied and relational emergent process that comes from embodied and relational energy flow? So that would mean that the mind, at least this facet of it, is not restricted to your head, and it's not restricted even to your body. 
which as an attachment researcher made total sense. When I study parent-child relationships, you can feel the mind when you're seeing this relationship happening. Or if you're a teacher, you can feel the mind of a, in a classroom. So that's happening in the sharing of energy information flow. And so this is the hypothesis from 1992 that this could be a definition of the mind, what you see up here. Now, once you say it's a regulatory process, um, you can say, well, how do I optimize that regulation? Well, you learn to monitor with stability so you can see things clearly. You learn to move them, to modulate them in a certain way that you see on this slide, which is when you ask the mathematical question, how do I get that optimal flow of harmony, basically, that faces flow, flexible, adaptive, coherent, energized, and stable? And math has an answer that blew my mind when I read it. Math says that you optimize self-organization by doing two things. You differentiate on the one hand, you allow them to be different or specialized, and then you link on the other. When you don't do that, the system moves to chaos or rigidity. So as a psychiatrist running this training program in 1992, I went to the Diagnostic Bible for all the mental disorders, and every disorder, without an exception, could be reinterpreted as the symptom profile was either chaos, rigidity, or both. And no one was talking about health, but this was now a definition you could put of health. So that's when I started for the first time, like teaching and writing and saying, hey, the mind creates health by creating integration as we're defining it here, the linkage of differentiated parts within the body and between this body you're born into and the world of your connections with other people or the planet. And when integration is not happening, you have impediments to mental health. And I, I would suggest to you, you also have impediments to ecological health. That whatever level of the system you're looking at, the individual, the couple, like a romance, a family, a school, an organization, like a company like Yoga Glow, like looking at governments and how they treat their citizens or not, um, looking at global systems, whatever level of system, this is a useful thing to look at. So then what um, happened uh, to me as a therapist, as I said, because I'm always looking for these conciliant overlaps, is what would happen if you put these two conciliant ideas together? Integration is health, consciousness, is needed for change. What would happen if you integrated consciousness? So this is a table in our office down the street. And um, the center of the table is uh, glass. You can see right through it. And I designed it for kind of feng shui reasons when you enter the room I used to have. Um, anyway, so you'd walk in as a patient and you'd say, oh, this looks like I can just come on the surface, which is the wood rim. But then you dive and you go, oh, my God, I'm going to go deep in here. Anyways, like hypnotizing people, the, my patients. Um, so what this shows you is that you've got this capacity to use this as a metaphor. So this is a table in our office. Um, no one wanted to call it the table of awareness. <laughs> it was called the wheel. But the idea was that the center is a hub that represents awareness. So if I say, good afternoon, how many of you were aware I said good afternoon? So you have two things going on there. 
You've got the awareness, which we're going to put in the hub, and you have the thing that you're aware of, the sound of me saying good afternoon. And that we would put on the rim. And then you can go around the whole rim. So you could see, divide into four sections. One section is energy flow patterns from outside the body, like sound is energy of air molecules moving. Light is photons coming into your eyes. Then you have smell and taste or chemical energy. And touch is kinetic energy. So those are all patterns of energy from outside the body. So the body is a kind of reference point for this. Then you go inside the body for what's called interoception, or the sixth sense in science, we call it that, um, for perceiving the sensations of the muscles, the bones, and the genitals and the organs. So that you put over there, and this is a, a, a thing where you'd be moving this spoke of attention around systematically to differentiate all the knowns from each other, including the third segment, which is your mental activities, like emotions, memories, thoughts, hopes, dreams, longings, desires, beliefs, attitudes, stuff like that. And you would explore all that here. And then there's even a fourth segment of the rim, which would be your sense of interconnection with other people and with the planet. It's probably the most underdeveloped sense that we have in modern contemporary culture. And yet, it's probably the most important for saving the planet, our relational sense. When you grow up in a culture that is constantly telling you you're just alone in that body you're born into, um, you come to believe what you're told. And E.O. Wilson, who's a, a biologist who wrote the book Consilience, he wrote a book called The Meaning of Human Existence. And he has this incredible and painful um, paragraph there where he says, human beings rely on two major forms of sensation, sight and hearing. And unlike other animals that rely on all sorts of more pheromone-based chemical sensations, where they realize they're deeply embedded in a whole relational world, human beings get the illusion Wilson says, that we're separate. And then he goes on to say, when there were only a few hundred thousand of us on the planet, that wasn't such a big deal. But now that there are seven billion and climbing, it's a really big deal. We are sensory, uh, very limited. He uses another term there, which I won't use. We're very limited in our sensory input. Um, and that is creating an erroneous perception, which then creates an idea the self is separate. There was another scientist who talked about that too in a quote that you probably have heard by Albert Einstein, who called that belief that we're separate an optical delusion of consciousness. So whether you go with Wilson and say, oh, we're mistaken, it's a perceptual illusion, or Einstein, and he's calling it a psychotic belief. Either way, we've got a problem, a serious problem. And you know, here at GLOW, you have an opportunity to say, wow, we want people to feel good, but maybe you also want them to transform their sense of identity to embrace what might be even more true. So 
In this wheel practice, what became really fascinating for me was I just did it just to see if I could put these two things together. I did it with my patients in the 90s, and people started getting decreases in anxiety, decreases in mild to moderate depression. Some of my patients had you know, terminal illnesses. They were coming for therapy because they were terrified of dying. This helped them face death. A lot of my patients, I'm a specialist in trauma, were people who had survived trauma. And this was really, really helpful for them. So then I started teaching it to my students who are therapists, and they found it helpful with their personal lives. They taught it to their clients. They found it really helpful. And then even though it wasn't what I usually did in those days, I was teaching professionals, not the public. But then I started doing workshops on this. And then since I'm a scientist, I would take a recorder, and I would record what was going on in, when people would do the wheel practice. And after I'd finished doing that with 10,000 people, um, I just became absolutely obsessed with asking the question, what in the world is going on in this practice? Because no matter what continent I was on, no matter what a person's background with meditation or education or religion or gender or age or anything, the results were incredibly similar. So that was really intriguing. And now I've done it with, as of last week, about 48,000 people in person, like in rooms like this. And then people take the microphone around and they say what's going on. And it's been absolutely fascinating just as a window into what the mind may be. So we won't do the practice today, but this is a practice that we have on our website that um, you can try out. And what I think would be most useful for us here is to really think about why people say what they say, especially at this part of the practice. You move the the spoke around, and there's a time, this takes about half an hour, it's, well, we're not gonna use the time today to do it, but when they turn the spoke around, something happens that you would never predict. Now, have any of you done the wheel practice? You've done it, okay, so you too know. Um, it's just, it's remarkable, and it's just from this simple table, I mean, this, this wheel metaphor, that people would, would say things, and they would say things that you can see up here. Um, there's these universal findings. This is the 10,000-person survey. Uh, people who do the wheel regularly find it reduces chaos and rigidity. If I, you know, I do this practice every day. When I, if I'm in a funky mood, I'll do it um, uh, also. And it just changes, gets me out of the chaos or rigidity of that mood. It's really remarkable. Um, but here's what I want to focus on for today is this part when you actually explore pure awareness. And this is um, whether someone's been meditating for 40 years and running a monastery, or whether they've never meditated a day in their life. They'll say things like, in the hub, there was this incredible feeling of clarity, joy. It was empty yet full, expansive, infinite, eternity, God, Love, peace, sense of belonging, fundamental part of the whole, connected to others, the world, and the universe. So I want to pause here briefly to note that you know, in Dan's talk, he referred to a metaphorical wheel of awareness. It was based, as you heard him describe, on an actual table that he had in his office, his, his therapy office. He didn't want to call it the table of awareness, so he called it the wheel. And it refers to 
a meditation practice that takes one through three pillars of mind training. And remember, mind is not simply something that happens in the brain. You know, other parts of the body play an important role in producing the experience of a mind. And those three pillars of mind training are focused attention, open awareness, and kind intention. I wanna take a moment here to also note in his book, Aware, he lists the evidence-based health benefits that can arise by combining these mind training tools, tools that you'll find in varying degrees in classes that we offer on GLOW. And he says in his book, when we develop focused attention, open awareness, and kind intention, research reveals that we improve immune function to help fight infection, optimize the level of the enzyme telomerase, which repairs and maintains the ends of your chromosomes, keeping your cells and therefore you youthful, functioning well and healthy, enhance the epigenetic regulation of genes to help prevent life-threatening inflammation, modify cardiovascular factors, improving cholesterol levels, blood pressure and heart function, increase neural integration in the brain, enabling more coordination and balance in both the functional and structural connectivity within the nervous system that facilitates optimal functioning, including self-regulation, problem solving, and adaptive behavior that, that is at the heart of well-being. Towards the end of his book on page 348, he notes that the wheel simply offers one method to experience these benefits. He goes on to say you can achieve these benefits through some other regularly exercised method of focused discipline practice that trains these pillars of mind, whether that be say walking through nature with an awake mind, paying close attention to one's surroundings or some other method of doing so that works for you. I thought it was important to note that there are so many wonderful passages from Dr. Siegel's book that uh, I just don't have time here to read for you. I highly recommend you check it out. Now back to the remainder of Dan's talk at Glow's office. I teach with Jack Cornfield a lot and Jack and I were doing a, a workshop in Seattle and um, you know we had 500 people in the room and did the wheel and uh, took a break. It was at the Seattle Needle. Come back, people are in sharing time. This guy takes the microphone and he goes, I'm a 70-year-old Microsoft engineer and I just retired last month. And my wife's a therapist and she brought me here to see you two bozos. And, and Jack and I are going, oh my God, you know, what's gonna happen? And, um, and then he gets really quiet and really slow and I won't do it as slowly as he did for the sake of time. But slowly, slowly he goes, I don't know what you did. I've never meditated before in my life. I've never had therapy, you know. And, uh, but when I bent that spoke around and I was in that hub, he goes, something changed in me. He goes, and then I went out to the park. It's the Seattle Needle where there's this park. And he basically says that he sees this gardener and the gardener's watering the roses and there's water coming out of the hose. And now he's crying and he's going, I am the water. I am, we are the butterflies. We're the bees. I'm the gardener. And, and like, you could hear a pin drop in the room. Or I was asked to go to another country and they're having all sorts of fights about immigration issues and, and they asked me to do a, an intensive workshop with the parliament and we did the wheel and people shared. And then during the break time, everyone's having a snack and one of the parliamentarians comes up to me and goes, you know, I didn't want to share in the sharing time. I go, okay, well, fine, whatever. And he goes, you want to know why I didn't share? I go, yeah, I'd like to know why you didn't share. 
and it gets really quiet, just like the Microsoft engineer. And he goes, you know the part when you bend the spoke around? And I go, yeah, I'm familiar with that part. And he goes, um, he goes, I have never felt so much love before in my life. I felt connected to everyone and everything. And then there's a silence between the two of us. I said, so you felt a lot of love. He goes, so much love. He goes, and I said, so you didn't want to share that? He goes, oh, no, no, no. And he points over to his colleagues and he goes, they would think I was weak. I go, oh, wow. So you don't want to look weak? He goes, oh, no, no. So then the silence, and I said to him, so let me ask you a question. He said, okay. I said, when you're making national policy, when you make your federal laws, do you leave love out of the reasoning? And then his eyes get really, really big. He wags his finger at me, and he runs over to his colleagues. Well, they don't know what they said. Um, but you would only hope that he might have had a direct experience subjective first-person direct experience that would teach him that love and this awareness and this interconnection are like three interwoven threads of a singular tapestry of life instead of leaving that out of his legislative work that they do in this kind of cold government that he worked in how can you leave love out of legislation isn't that what's destroying the planet and isn't it the love of each other and love of the planet that's gonna save where we're going. That's the only thing that's gonna save where we're going. So he was articulating something very important. First of all, that he had never felt so much love before in his life when it's just a 25 minute meditation practice away. And he equated love with weakness. So is that the kind of world we wanna live in? That's the question. The other question just intellectually and scientifically is what's going on? So this is the amazing thing. This happens over and over and over again when my students come with me to these repeated work workshops in different places, but they come with me. Um, and you hear like the exact same wording every single time. Not every person has it every time. I don't have it every time I do the wheel. But every workshop, every time, without exception, this happens. Now, what's interesting is that people who have run meditation centers or monasteries or whatever will say that wheel practice is the most advanced kind of practice you can do. And my experience, not being a meditation, you know, trained person in the tr classic contemplative traditions, you know, is I just teach it to people who've never meditated before because I don't know better and they seem to be fine with it. It's hard, but they can do it. So these three things, presence, interconnection, and love seem to all go together. So I'm going to ask you, why would that be the case? What is going on here? It's not like, you know, this was like, oh, of course, we're going to prove this and I'm going to hypnotize them or something like that. This is just what is observed in the hub. So what is that? So I'm going to give you one possible view of what this may be coming from. And please put on your seatbelts now because... You know, this could be totally wrong, or it could be partially right, or it might be right. So we have to keep a skeptical mind going. But let me, let me give you a sense of what it might be. Right around when these uh, results were coming in, I was asked to go teach at a, a science and spirituality conference uh, for a week um, with a, a 150 physicists. 
It was all physicists and me and, and some mathematicians there. Um, so I took the opportunity to ask them, uh, the participants, what in the world energy is? Because, of course, you hear energy is the capacity to do work, and that's a classical Newtonian physics view. But these were mostly quantum physicists. And here's what they said. Energy is the movement from possibility to actuality. Now, just let's pause for a moment on that. Energy is the movement from possibility to actuality. Now, that's just weird, you know, and whoever talks like that. (laughs) But this is what they said, and they weren't, like, ambiguous about it. They said, empirically, in physics, so you have math, now we're moving up to physics, this is what energy is. So we're wandering around. It's an old monastery in Tuscany, so it wasn't so bad, and I could eat gluten those days and have lots of pasta and wine and, you know, walking around thinking about this thing. And, um, and then I realized this explained the wheel. And let me show you just a way to think about it. So if you take that statement from physics and say, well, how, how could you kind of get a feeling for that? So this is, this is a drawing that um, can help us do it. Let's say right now you and I share a million words. And I'm thinking of one of those words. What's your chance of knowing which word I'm going to say? One in a million. Very good. So one in a million is right there, right? And so that's our point A. Right now, this moment in time, not that time is real, but we'll talk about time in a moment, you know, but, but this, this, is, this x-axis would be things changing over what we call clock time anyway. And this is a probability axis where the bottommost place is called near zero. This is where all the possibilities are sitting. There's a million of them in this example, right? Now, I'm going to say a word. You ready? Ocean. Where is the next spot going to be now that I've said ocean? Okay. So, so you think it would be like about 1%? Now that I've said ocean, where would it be on the graph? It would be 100% like that right? Because it's become an actual. So the way the physicists talk about it is they say there is a formless source of all form, and that's the bottom. And then when things become actualized, they pop up. That's called the probability distribution curve, the up and down axis, right? Now, sometimes, you know, you don't start from where all the things are. You start from a subset of them, like there are five oceans in the world. So where would we put all those five choices? You'd put them over here at C. C Point C would be one out of five. And then when I finally say Indian Ocean, it rises up to C1. See how that works? So if we then take this graph, which has two axes on it, the probability curve up and down, clock time going this way, and then we go and add one more uh, axis, the Z axis going in and out of the plane of the wall there, this diversity axis, everybody see that? then what, what's in this graph you could simply call a plane of possibility. It's a plane because the shape of the graph, right? So from a physics point of view, just staying with that, this plane of possibility correlates with what the physicists would call the sea of potential or the quantum vacuum. 
synonyms for the formless source of all form. So when a physicist says energy is the movement from possibility to actuality, that potentiality, that po what's called potential energy, is in the mathematical space called the quantum vacuum. And it's here, right here in our graph, the plane of possibility. Everybody with me so far? Okay. So just for the sake of um, our languaging, we would have three different kinds of things. We would have the plane. We would have that subset, which we're going to call a plateau, which only allows three peaks to arise here, or peaks can arise straight from the plane, where you could come from anything. Everybody see that? So you can call this a 3P diagram, meaning there's peaks, plateaus, and plane. Everybody got that? So I'm about to show you a proposal on how you can image the mind. Everybody ready? So it would look like this. That thought, emotion, and memory would be peaks. They'd be actualizations of possibilities that arise sometimes from a state of mind, which would be like a mood or intention. And on the path from that state of mind up into actualization, you get thinking, emoting, and remembering. And then let's remember what people said in the hub. Remember, they said it was empty but full. Why would people talk like that? And you even say to them, what do you mean by that? And they go, I have no idea. That's just what it feels like. Well, what's empty but full here is the plane of possibility. It's empty of form and full of possibility. Everybody see that? So here's the hypothesis. Consciousness is when energy has moved into the plane of possibility. That's where consciousness comes from. And if that's true, there are a number of, of implications of that um, that we can review. But what it means is in the practice, like every day when I do the wheel, and I have the opportunity to constantly be differentiating hub from rim, even before I bend the spoke around, because just to stay within the hub and go for sound and then go for sight, right, and, and light coming in and then smell and stuff like that, I'm experiencing the moving of that spoke constantly keeping grounded in the hub. And then you explore the interior of the body, same thing. And that, you're, by the way, you're building the muscle of focused attention, and then you move to mental activities, and then you're opening up awareness to invite anything in, but you're not getting lost down the rabbit hole of those activities. You're staying in the hub and allowing, if you will, these different above plane levels to arise, and then you start experiencing them but then when you do bend the spoke, you're dropping into pure awareness. And that's the hub there. Now, when you get to do that, what, is, what does that do for you? It brings up this um, really exciting set of questions that you can look at. The first is that people will say that that hub is timeless. Now, why do they say that? It's extended in space, deeply interconnected, empty yet full, like we said, feels complete and whole. 
Why would that hub be so distinct from the rim, right? So the month before the book where I wrote all this down in called Aware came out, this was the cover story of a very conservative magazine that you probably know about, Scientific American. And it talked about the empirical, research-based, accepted physics finding that the one reality we all live in has two realms. How many of you knew that? That we have two realms. And you know, I recently taught for 3,000 therapists in a room and also 3,000 techies up at uh, Wisdom 2.0. And I got the same response. 30 people in each of the rooms raised their hand. Oh, I know that. Which means 99% of super educated people have no idea about this. And this was even the cover story of like one of the most conservative science popular magazines in the world and they had no idea about it. Partly they don't have an idea about it is because this is so weird. What I'm about to tell you is freaky. And when I work with quantum physicists and I'll hang with them and I'm a psychiatrist, I ask questions like that. I said, how does it feel to be a quantum physicist? They go, really lonely. Why do you feel lonely? Because no one wants to hear what we've discovered. It just freaks everybody out. <laughs> so what I'm about to tell you is gonna freak you out. But how many of you know how to swim? Anybody know how to swim? Okay, so picture this. When you're doing like um, the breaststroke, right? You're swimming. Sometimes you go underwater, right? With your head, and sometimes you bring your head above water to get some air, and then sometimes you go underwater, right? Okay, now those are two realms. Air realm, water realm. Have you ever freaked out going, oh my God, I can't believe there's like a water realm and an air realm. How am I supposed to make sense of that existentially? It's, it's no pops, right? But you know the properties of floating underwater are completely different than we're out here in air, right? Right? So this is a similar kind of thing. So what are those realms? The way they're talked about is with these simple terms. When things are large objects, like bigger than an atom, um, but they could be really big, like your body, or like an airplane, or like a planet, or a star. Those are big items. So for big, we call them macro, macro states. Isaac Newton studied the way planets and moons you know, interacted with each other, and he came up with a set of laws as a college student, and they're called Newtonian physics laws, right? And it's the classical way we think about physics, so it's also called classical physics. So this classical realm is absolutely real. No one is saying, oh my God, it doesn't exist. It's real, and, and Newtonian equations still apply. The reason you could drive your car and stop at a red light or fly in an airplane and not fall down is because of Newtonian physics. Really important, solid as a rock, literally. It's good stuff. Then, that was 350 years ago, 100 years ago, physicists started studying things smaller than an atom. A proton is smaller than an atom, an electron, a photon. These are all teeny things. When you get small enough, we call it a unit, and a unit of energy, basically, is what it is, is a quanta, like a quantity. So that's where quantum comes from. Now, a unit of energy, let's say like a photon, um, essentially 
has properties on how it operates that you can also have mathematical equations that are even more accurately predictive of these small things. So it's also valid. You can show it in experiments that it's held up. These equations are incredibly accurate. And they don't correspond at all to Newtonian equations. What does this mean? This means there are two realms of our one reality. And this smaller realm is small, so it's a microstate. We know certain things about it. What are the differences? These are basically the differences between the quantum realm and the Newtonian realm. In the Newtonian realm, like these bodies we're in right now, we have the experience, the appearance, that they are noun-like entities. Your body's there, this body's there, that body's there, that body's there, that body's there. And you have spatial separations, and things are noun-like entities. In this world, if you and I went to a kitchen and cracked open an egg, we could not uncrack the egg. That's called the arrow of time. No one can find anything like time that flows, but one thing we know is in the Newtonian realm, change happens and it's irreversible. And that has to do with the second law of thermodynamics of entropy, but don't worry about that. But the issue is, in that realm, there's an arrow-bound unfolding of change. And we call that clock time, or we just call it time for short. Time is a word we use probably for our awareness of the arrow of time the directionality of change. Things look like they're separated in this world. And that's probably what Einstein was referring to. The optical delusion of being separate is a Newtonian delusion. Because in the microstate realm that is underneath the macrostate realm, meaning both it's smaller, but also meaning they're just beginning to study how some of these quantum effects can be measured in large objects like molecules, they can't find any entities. A photon, let's say a photon as an example. There's no there there. It's a probability field. That's weird. There's no substance, there's no entity when you get into it. In fact, most things are just emptiness. So what happens in a probability field are things are events. They're verbs. They're happenings. They're not things like nouns. There's no arrow of time. Oh my God. It's timeless. And everything is interconnected in ways I could tell you about, but it would freak you out. So I think this is enough freaking out for now. Massive interconnection. And so the illusion of spatial separation dissolves when it comes to the interconnection of these energy states. I was writing a, um, uh, the final chapter of this book yesterday. And yesterday morning, uh, a colleague of mine, she wrote a thing on, on the internet, and it had exactly what I needed to finish the chapter. So I wrote her, I said, can I quote you? She said, of course, of course. So you'll see this whole thing at the end. And it was, it was really beautiful. But, you know, it could have been random or not. So that's a big question we can have. Okay, now, 
These two realms seem like they're totally incompatible, and yet you live them every day. Now, you're born into a body, so you get this cultural message, family message, school message, even the message from your own inner life. Oh, I'm only a Newtonian noun. But the fact is, your mind, remember, is probably an emergent property of energy. Only it lives in a body. So it's a little freaky to be a human being, right? So what does that mean? Okay, so this is just like the water analogy. You could say that if integration is health, and let's say at GLOW you say we want to promote health, health of the individual, health of relationships, health of institutions, health of the planet. And integration is what you come from a concilium point of view to say is health. Well, then you would start with the individual's experience of consciousness. And you would say part of what the goal would be to open people up to learning to swim in reality. Right? If you're only swimming above the water or below the water, you're not having a really full swim. So you can have practices where people can learn to feel really comfortable going into the timelessness of the quantum realm in pure consciousness and then coming out and being back in the Newtonian arrow-bound world of things being like nouns. Right? And people can actually have conversations like that. In a way, what you'd say is when you're in the plane and when you're then outside the plane. So I want to just give you a little summary of what some of the implications are and then open up for questions. Um, and there are a lot more uh, of the implications of this framework, but let's go through them and see how it applies to your personal life. Think about how it applies to your interpersonal life. Think about how it applies to your professional life here at GLOW. Think about what um, creative ways you might bring this out into the world to try to create a healthier, more regenerative, sustainable world. Because right? these issues aren't, I mean, these may be interesting. I hope they're interesting. But it's not just for intellectual interest. This is literally a matter of life and death. You know, I was asked to speak at a um, climate change conference with all the different policymakers from different countries. And, uh, you know, I showed up and I said, why have you asked me to come? I think you got the wrong person. They go, no, 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 you're the person we want to be here. And I said, why? They go, well, what we've done has not worked. I said, it hasn't? They go, no. I said, well, what have you done? And they go, well, we tried to inform people and it didn't help at all. I said, okay. And then we tried to scare them. And even though Al Gore got a Nobel Prize and an Academy Award, less people were interested in helping the environment after an inconvenient truth. I said, you got to be kidding me. They said, nope. I said, so what are you going to do? They go, we're having you here. And I said, oh, that's, not, that's not a good sign. I said, well, if, you've, if you try to scare people and you've tried to inform them and it didn't work, they said it didn't work at all. I said, then maybe you need to transform them. And they said, well, what would that look like? And that's what I'll tell you about here. So this is the idea of, can you invite humanity to transform the cultural belief 
that the self is separate. And if that is kind of a, a kind of a, an approach to take, how would you take the steps to do it? And what's getting in the way, right? Why isn't it just happening naturally? Spontaneous transformation doesn't often happen. And there's a reason that I think you'll see embedded in these implications. So the first to say is, again, just a reminder, this could be totally wrong. And so just have a skeptical mind about it. If it is correct, and there's a number of reasons to think it might be, but if it is, um, the first is to say is that that diagram you saw, of the plane of possibility and the plateaus and peaks, would be a way of visualizing the mechanism of mind as an emergent property of energy as it goes from possibility to actuality. Everybody with me? So it fits with the physics, it fits with the math, and people who like mental health and psychology usually hate physics and hate math, and so it, it really is, it takes me a lot of effort to try to say, no, it's okay, you get over your phobia of math and physics, but that's all the math and physics you're gonna get. Um, the second implication that's really fascinating is in pure awareness, it's almost like there's a vital life force of the universe that has these three qualities. Presence, this open receptive awareness. Interconnection, I'm fundamentally mutually belonging to the whole world. And love. Love, love, love keeps on coming up over and over and over again. And I was recently at a compassion conference in Canada, and um, the teacher, a renowned teacher, would not use the L word. So at lunch, I was having lunch with him. I said, you didn't use the word love. He goes, oh, no, no, no. I said, why don't you use love? He goes, well, I want to get into Microsoft. I want to get into Google. And if I say love, they'll think I'm weak. I mean, I, I, this is a compassion teacher. I'm going, oh, my God. You know, leaving love out is probably a serious, serious problem. Maybe we should come up with another word or something. But whatever you want to call the feeling of I'm madly in love with life and the world and caring. And, you know, when people think even about Earth, and you think about what I'm going to do for the young generation to save life on Earth, it's not going to be out of guilt, as the poet Gary Snyder talks about. It can't be out of guilt. It can't be out of fear, like Joanna Macy talks about. It must be out of love. You save the things you love. So we have to have kids fall in love with other people. We have to have kids fall in love with nature. And this is looks like where love comes from is you don't have to find it somewhere, it's within you to drop into that plane of possibility. That's the amazing thing. Number three is really fascinating from a point of view of um, how you would understand practices you might teach here at GLOW, for example, or I don't know if this is your, uh, your uh, what do you call this, your, um, your manifesto, but I was reading your manifesto and I don't, this fits with it in very interesting ways. But this plane is the formless source of all form. Now, what that means is that, and that's physics. That's, that's quoting physicists. That's not trying to be poetic. So what that means is if you can teach practices, like the wheel or something else, that drop you into the formless source of all form, this is where other options are sitting. So when people have learned plateaus 
and are stuck in only particular peaks that are trapping their life, you've now taught them the overall framework for how to access the other options to reach their potential that they didn't even know they could reach. That's where the other, literally, potential is sitting in that space. Now, what's interesting about that, the formless source of all form, and I, I hope this is not offensive to anyone here in the room, but I used to teach with um, a wonderful man named John O'Donohue. Do any of you know John? He was an Irish Catholic priest and a poet and a philosopher and an Irish mystic and an amazing human being. He died about 12 years ago. So John and I used to teach a lot together, and we were writing a book together. Anyway, but as a priest, of course, he believes in God, and that was a part of his vocabulary. And um, this whole framework uh, got written down after he died. So I can never say this to him, but we did a 10-year anniversary of his life in Ireland, and a lot of his classmates from when he was trained to be a priest were there in the room. And I said the following things, and I was so nervous. Um, that formless source of all form is basically the generator of diversity, right? Anything that's going to rise is generated from there. And since I'm an acronym addict, imagine how I would make an acronym of the generator of diversity. <laughs> and so I quickly went to them at the break, and I said, I hope I didn't offend you. They go, oh, Dan, Dan, that was really great. <laughs> John would have thought that was really grand, too. You know, like that. So um, anyway, so... You know, I've been working with people in the Christian tradition, in the Hindu tradition, in the Islamic tradition, in the Jewish tradition, in indigenous traditions. And interestingly, this model is a bridge between science and spirituality. It's been absolutely fascinating to see that. And this is like a generator of diversity. So this is this notion that you drop there, and then instead of making things happen, you allow them to happen. And it's so conciliant with so many different things that different kind of approaches talk about. It's absolutely fascinating. Number four, infinity is infinity. This is the idea that this is where we connect with each other. So in other words, your plane and your plane and your plane and your plane and your plane, they're the identical plane. We may be differentiated on our plateaus and peaks, which is fine. Differentiation is absolutely fine. And, not or, and we want to drop to a space where we find each other so that there's unity in the diversity. And it looks like it comes from there. Now you could say, well, why don't people just go there if it's so cool and joyous and all that stuff? Why don't they just spontaneously go there? Here's one possible reason why. And I'm saying this both as a human being on the planet, but also as a therapist. Um, everything in life that challenges us often makes us fear uncertainty. So if you're someone who's been traumatized, for example, the last thing you want is uncertainty. Or if you have someone who's gone to school and you're given an A for knowing the answer on a test and you're given a D when you don't know the answer on the test and you're uncertain, everything reinforces certainty. No one says to a bunch of kids in school, hey, why don't you just hang out and just free form and let your imagination go? No, they don't do that. Unfortunately, they should, but they don't. So, you know, there's some schools actually very close to here, if, like I could throw a rock over, where we're working on this of how do you actually make it a school where kids get in touch with that hub of the wheel, with the plane of possibility, right? 
So this is the amazing thing. If you think about the graph, right, maximal uncertainty is in the plane. So it could be that our whole human family, in the way modern culture is, you should know the answer to that. You should do this, and everything's freaking everybody out, so everyone wants to be certain. You want to cling to a certain belief, a certain way of being, all this kind of stuff. This is who I am, all this kind of thing, all these plateaus. When you help someone, let's say with the wheel practice, access the hub. I'll give you an example. I was doing this at a workshop recently. 150 people in the room, five-day workshop. This woman takes the microphone, and she says, I want to say what, what, what happened to me when I did this wheel. I said, okay, please do. You've killed me. I'm dead. And everyone's like, and so then I'm the facilitator, right? So what, what would you say? We say, so tell me what it feels like to be dead. What else are you going to say? <laughs> you know. So she starts talking about the feeling of being dead, empty. I don't, I don't feel my body. It's kind of terrifying. I just, you know, she's on and on. So I ground her more in her body. She's feeling comfortable to move on, and the other people start sharing, and they were the opposite of dead, alive. You know, and then I put up the graph that you saw, the plateaus, the peaks, and the plain. And then we're getting near the end of the session, not the end of the workshop, but the end of the five days, like the second day or something. And she's got this gigantic smile on her face. So I said, before we stop the session, can we come back to you? She goes, sure. And she says, look, just, just look at this. She's got this big smile. And I said, can you put words to the smile? She goes, that graph just explained my whole life. And it turned out she was a, someone that had a lot of difficult experiences in her family. She had lost herself in very, very rigid plateaus of self-defining noun-like existence. And in the wheel practice, and she's not a meditator, but in the wheel practice, she had entered that spaciousness of uncertainty where, as she said, I'm in pieces but at peace. Right? And so then I tracked her for the rest of the week, and I've heard from her since, but, and her best friends were with her at this retreat, and they said they had never seen her look happier, right? So this is a part of what happens to people is you get locked up in a plateau of certainty. I'm this political party, I'm this religion, I'm, I'm this, I'm that, or whatever, and you feel like you have to make things happen within the rigidity of that plateau, and when you help, help people get access to this plane, they learn to drop out of that need for certainty, because what's the synonym, what's the e equivalent of uncertainty? Endless possibility. Freedom. Endless possibility. It may seem like chaos, and that, that's what freaks people out, but you drop into that spaciousness, and what arises from there is integration. Endless possibility. You don't have to define yourself. And maybe you can even feel it in your body now just thinking about it. The shift from, I've got to be this plateau, I've got to make things happen, I only have certain kind of peaks to rise. You drop yourself into the plane, and then endless possibilities are available to you. And you have access to a timeless space 
of infinity. So people who are facing death, for example, who embrace this practice or have a total shift in where they think they're going to be or religious or not, because what happens is they realize they've gotten about 100 years to live in a body, whatever fraction of that century you get is, and that that plateau noun-like body you've lived in doesn't mean that you are going to end because you are more than just a noun. And when people can approach death in a way of peace to realize they have access to this place of infinity and place of eternity, it all changes. And I'm not saying this, I'm not a religious person. I may be spiritual, but I'm not religious. And I'm not saying this as a religious person. I'm saying this as a scientist, that this journey to uh, be alive is really all about how you embrace the journey of dying. They're not separate things. And if you can't embrace the journey toward dying with a sense of celebration, then you get stuck in a plateau of fear. And so this is what, what, when she said, it's killed me, it actually liberated her. It killed her from the, you know, in, in Brooklyn, uh, where our daughter lives, at the, at the um, public library, an artist put her um, uh, quote on the wall that's absolutely amazing. It said, coming to understand the flimsy, fantasy of certainty, comma, I let myself wander, right? That flimsy fantasy of certainty is something that everybody, not everybody, but many, many, many people cling to, and it keeps them lost in the top. So the final two things I'll just say, and then we'll open up for questions, is um, that if this model is true, if it works, if it, if it, if it helps us and it's accurate, it means that there's this timeless state, and that actually is both liberating, but initially maybe a little freaky. You know, so for any of you who meditate, you probably have experienced it that sometimes you can shift out of the day-to-day, -day, you know, oh, I've got this planning to do whatever, and you can feel that timelessness. How many of you have ever felt that timelessness in a yoga experience? You're right. That, it's not that that's special or like you had to like get a special thing, you know, it's available to every one of us every moment of every day. And think about what it means then to cultivate resilience. Let's say in the face of everything going on in politics or in the economy or on the planet with the climate crisis. All those things are really, really important to deal with, but they need to come from a spaciousness of the mind that comes right from this hub, basically, this plane of possibility. And it has a sense of timelessness. And the final thing, this, um, this seventh point, let me just ask you a question. How many of you have ever had a feeling about something that happened in a communication with someone you may know, where they were physically not close to you, but you got some kind of very specific communication, the timing of something that you just had a feeling this cannot be a coincidence. Anybody have that? Raise your hand if you have. Okay, ra ra raise your hand really high so we can see. Take a look. So it's like everybody. All right, and it's, when I've done this on lots and lots of people, it's about 80%. 
Now, many, many people are so um, freaked out about it, they don't ever want to share it with anybody because they'll think they're nuts. And I'll say, why do you think you're nuts? They go, because there's no explanation for it. So how could it happen? So this is what I'll say to you. In 2015, a physics study was published called Closing the Final Loophole. And they, they basically did a very careful study that took everyone's complaint about the way this particular property of the universe was studied, and they approached it in a way where you could not assail it at all. And once that study was done, it basically became accepted that this phenomenon I'm about to describe to you is absolutely real. There's no doubt about it after 2015 at all. Now, this is in a physics journal, so that's physics. We were just talking about your communication with someone close to you, which is our personal lives. So I'm not going to say that the physics I'm about to say to you absolutely applies to your personal life. But logically, if the mind, which is about your personal life, is an emergent property of energy, which is what our proposal is, if that were true, then it might be, just with a million mites under, under, you know, underlined, underlined might, it just might be that what I'm about to tell you might be relevant because this is a study of pure energy. So what does the study show? The study shows that if you take two units of energy, let's say two photons and or two electrons, and you pair them up so they're in a close relationship with each other, it means that if one is spinning clockwise, the other one must spin counterclockwise. They're what's called entangled. So this is basically the physics property of entanglement. Now, you separate them out by an inch. They still influence each other. Two inches, two feet, 20 feet, two miles, 2,000 miles, 10,000 miles. Instantaneous shifting. And they just did a study about 12 months ago of the entanglement of stars that came from the Big Bang that I think are 100 million light years apart. What this tells us, then, is that in the quantum realm, when we use the word interconnected, it doesn't mean that everything is interconnected with everything, but it does mean that there are deep interconnections and that in the quantum realm, the realm of energy, the Newtonian notion of spatial separation is meaningless. Newtonian spatial separation, like I'm 10,000 miles away, that's a Newtonian statement. For two entangled electrons is irrelevant. They're still in relationship to each other. Newtonian spatial separation doesn't impede quantum entanglement. And that's called non-locality because the word local has to do with, with Newtonian, the Newtonian realm. So I'm not saying we're going to jump up and down and say, oh, now we have proof for why these things happen. However, when people say to me, there is no scientific explanation for how in the world I could have a communication 
with someone 3,000 miles from me, you know, that was so specific that how could that be a, a, a coincidence? What's, what skeptics will say is, of course it was a coincidence. What I say is, you know, I've heard so many stories that are so specific. I'll just give you one sad one. I was taking care of someone. He went to another state. Sadly, he died in a terrible, weird, freaky accident. At the exact moments he was dying in this terrible, freaky accident, his sister later became my patient, was driving to work here in our town, and she had to pull over, called her work, and said, I don't know what's going on. My brain is filled with, and she described the terrible, freaky accident, exactly when it's happening, at exactly the time. Now, you tell me that that's a coincidence. She's never had that since, never had it before. That kind of specificity. So for her, it was like, I, I must be a freak. And I said, no, you're entangled with your brother. I don't know exactly that's why, but it would be an explanation that would be logical, right? Anyway, so when we say deeply interconnected, it means you drop out of thinking you can control everything, and you realize that these things uh, can really help us understand something. I'll give you one more story. Let me just say this. The plane of possibility perspective on consciousness has been such an interesting um, conversation starter because people will say things about what they experienced. And I'll, let me just, this is an incredible story. Something happened once to somebody, <laughs> is that generic enough, where um, he was being murdered, okay? Being murdered, the act of murder was happening to him, and he got into this spacious, timeless place that he didn't know why, and as he's being murdered, he smiles. And the murderer takes out the weapon and doesn't murder him. Gets arrested, of course. Not, of course, not every murderer gets arrested. And insists on seeing his uh, almost victim, well, his victim, but who didn't die. And this guy was at our workshop, and he comes to me and says, I never understood what my smile was about, but as that guy was murdering me, I went to the plane of possibility. He had never meditated before in his life, and now we were doing the wheel in this workshop. And he goes, that's exactly where I went. People thought I was insane. And in fact, they've tried to think I'm psychotic, but you've just explained the entire experience. He was murdering me, and instead of freaking out, because what was I going to do, I, without even trying, I got into this spacious place, and it felt so peaceful that I could feel the smile coming over my body, and it freaked him out so much he stopped murdering me. And so the guy says to him in jail, what was going on with you? I was murdering you, and you're smiling at me, and I couldn't get that out of my face, and I just had to not murder you. So this guy says, the plane of possibility saved me. That's a pretty freaky story, but... You know, everyone listening to the story going, oh, my God. And but what was really amazing about it was that space in that almost murder victim's life, he now uses because he can access it with the wheel of awareness practice. It just doesn't have to be when someone's like 
ending your life. You go, oh my God, I saw the light of the, the tunnel, you know. So this is where it becomes very interesting. And if you take a framework that helps you understand um, the mind like this, you know, Louis Pasteur, uh, the scientist who helped us understand um, penicillin and stuff like that, had this great phrase, chance favors the prepared mind. And what I try to do as a, as a teacher or as a therapist um, or as a, as a dad, you know, we've got two grown children, you know, is say, how do you prepare a mind so that in the world out there where so many things that are uncontrollable or unknowable happen, that the mind is prepared for the chance events that occur so that it'll be resilient and able to deal with them. And that's what I hope this framework can do for you. Uh, lay a kind of groundwork and a vocabulary that lets you understand things like yoga or, you know, I work with people who do Tai Chi or Qigong or all, it's, you'd be amazed to find the consilience of this framework across all the different approaches of transforming our lives. So thank you so much for your attention. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at GLOW. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider at Red Cub Agency for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find The Glow Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills. Derek Mills.